Did you know that Nika AATC offers self-paced online courses on a growing range of topics aimed at helping you improve health outcomes for people with HIV? These interactive courses can typically be completed in about an hour and cover multidisciplinary topics such as smoking cessation in people with HIV, geriatric assessment and integration and models of care, managing difficult behaviors in HIV care settings, and using Zoom as a virtual workspace. Self-paced online courses are offered on RISE, Nika AATC's online learning platform. Courses are designed for healthcare providers providing patient care for people with HIV, including physicians, physician assistants, nurses, pharmacists, case managers, outreach workers, and other disciplines. To explore online courses for HIV care professionals, navigate to www.nikaatc.org slash rise-courses. That's www.nikaatc.org forward slash R-I-S-E dash C-O-U-R-S-E-S or click the link in the podcast episode description. Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Brayman. Today, we're sitting down with Dr. Jason Zucker to talk about the recent increase in the rates of congenital syphilis and how this impacts HIV care providers. Dr. Zucker is Assistant Professor in Medicine at Columbia University Irving Medical Center and Assistant Director at the NYC STD Prevention and Training Center. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Zucker. Thanks for having me today. It's great to be here. So there's been a huge spike in congenital syphilis cases in recent years, but before we get into why and, you know, the how, let's talk numbers. What do we know as of now about the rates of syphilis in newborns in the last year, and how do they compare to previous years? So the rates of syphilis in newborns have been increasing rapidly. In November, the CDC released an MMWR that provided an early look at the 2022 data and they reported a staggering 3,761 cases of congenital syphilis, including 231 stillbirths and 51 infant deaths. To put that in context, that's actually increased every single year and represents a tenfold increase from the 335 cases identified in 2012. And what about the rates of congenital syphilis versus syphilis cases overall in adults? What can you tell us about that? The congenital syphilis issue is part of the much larger issue of STIs affecting people in the United States and around the world. Since 2017, gonorrhea has increased 28%, and syphilis has increased overall 74%, in addition to the increase in congenital syphilis we talked about earlier. To put that in context, there was actually a goal to reduce primary and secondary syphilis cases to 1,000 or fewer by 2005. And instead, we've really gone the other direction, with almost 54,000 cases of primary and secondary syphilis in 2021. Interestingly, while syphilis has been more common in gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men, the rate of syphilis is increasing faster in females than males. Females made up only 12% of primary and secondary syphilis cases in 2017, but make up almost 23% by 2021. So you mentioned female and congenital cases increasing recently. Why might that be? So this increase in syphilis in females is most notable during their childbearing years, 
which is likely in contributing to the large increase in congenital syphilis cases that we're seeing. As to why female syphilis is increasing, there's really not one right answer to this question, but like many things in healthcare, the answer is likely multifactorial. Uh, a few of the reasons include one, that the overall rise in total of syphilis cases. As we're seeing more total cases of syphilis, there's an increased chance of someone being able to acquire syphilis. Two is that the epidemic is definitely different in certain areas. While in some areas, it's primarily driven by sexual transmission, in other areas, substance use, and particularly IV drug use, is really contributing to the increase in congenital or female syphilis cases. There's also a lack of clear routine screening recommendations for women outside of pregnancy. The CDC guidelines are to screen women who are at increased risk for syphilis. However, that requires taking a comprehensive sexual history, which we know doesn't happen at every care encounter. The fourth and final reason I want to mention is that awareness, and it's awareness for syphilis is low because for many years, both providers and patients forgot about syphilis. Outside of the sexual health area, I routinely hear providers say syphilis is still around or women don't get syphilis, not realizing how the epidemiology of this disease has changed over time. We also know that routine sexual education is not uniform across the country. And so many women may not know that they're at risk for syphilis and know to ask for testing if it's not offered to them by their providers. And so there really are a lot of reasons for this increase in syphilis cases among women. So why should healthcare providers care about this? And, you know, specifically, why should HIV care providers be especially aware of this? And there are definitely many reasons for that. You know, the first is the public health concern. As we talked about, cases are increasing rapidly. And if we want to reverse those trends, we really need to ensure early detection and treatment to prevent ongoing propagation of disease. Second, syphilis can impact HIV transmission. There's an estimated two to five-fold increase uh, in the risk of acquiring HIV if you're exposed to that infection when syphilis is pregnant. Studies have also shown that syphilis can increase the viral load of someone who's already HIV infected, potentially making them more likely to transmit. Finally, is for our patients. You know, most commonly syphilis presents with mild symptoms, but it can present with more severe symptoms, including neurological disease and eye and ear infections that have the potential to cause permanent vision and hearing loss. The event recently was, an out, there, was a, uh, there was recently an outbreak of ocular syphilis cases in Michigan. Additionally, there's data that people with HIV might actually be at higher risk of acquiring HIV and that people with immunosuppression may actually get more severe disease. And so there's lots of reasons our HIV providers in particular really need to be aware of syphilis, screening for syphilis regularly, and be able to treat patients who test positive. So what's being done about these rising syphilis cases in terms of the national plan to eliminate syphilis? Is there any kind of strategic plan in place to get these rising rates under control? Absolutely. So in 2021, the United States released an STI national strategic plan. And while the plan is for STIs as a whole, obviously syphilis is prominently mentioned in there. The goal is to prevent new STIs, reduce the adverse outcomes of STIs, accelerate STI research, reduce STI disparities, and achieve integrated coordinated efforts to address the STI epidemic. Really, we need to do a lot of work in STI because we've neglected that area for a long time. Some of the primary indicators they're going to be using when we talk specifically about syphilis include reducing the cases of primary and secondary syphilis, reducing cases of congenital syphilis rates, as well as reducing syphilis rates in targeted populations like those at highest at increased vulnerability to syphilis, and in specific regions of the country where syphilis has been rising more rapidly. 
And how is treatment for syphilis during pregnancy and congenital syphilis different from treating non-pregnant adults with syphilis? Okay. So the good news is there's really no difference in treating syphilis in patients who are pregnant. The uh, treatment remains the same with for primary, secondary, and early latent syphilis, a single dose of benzazine penicillin G. For early, for late latent syphilis or syphilis of unknown duration, it's still three shots of benzazine penicillin G, one shot weekly for three weeks. And for neuroocular and otic syphilis, it's still 10 to 14 days of IV penicillin therapy. The differences I do want to highlight, though, is that there's no alternative regimens in pregnancy. So for women who are allergic to penicillin, the recommendation is that they should be actually desensitized to penicillin and still receive that medication. There's also some evidence indicating that additional therapy is beneficial for pregnant women to prevent congenital syphilis. And so for women who have primary, secondary, early latent syphilis, while a single dose is considered acceptable, a second dose of benzazine penicillin G can be administered one week after the initial dose, although not required and not all providers give that dose. One other thing I'll highlight is we do have a national benzazine penicillin shortage right now. And so it is important that as providers, we make sure we are prioritizing that medication for our pregnant patients who don't have other options for treatment. So in line with the you know issues that have been happening with the penicillin shortages recently, how has this affected treatment for congenital syphilis? So as I said, it definitely had a larger effect on others and on pregnant women and their babies. You know, benzazine penicillin remains the only recommended treatment for pregnant women um, and for babies who don't need IV therapy. And so most jurisdictions and providers have really been working to prioritize the supply that we have for this population. You know, this is a concern on a larger scale because we are having to use doxycycline for other populations. And 14 to 28 days of doxycycline is a lot, especially when people have side effects like nausea and GI intolerance. And so it's possible we're not fully treating people like we were when they're using the injections. And so we'll need to monitor patients carefully to ensure an adequate RPR response. For healthcare providers listening in, who should be tested for syphilis and how can we diagnose syphilis during pregnancy? So the CDC currently recommends screening all pregnant women at the first prenatal visit. And again, in the third trimester, if at increased risk or in a community with elevated syphilis rates, I will say that given the rise in congenital syphilis, we really are trying to encourage third trimester screening for everybody. And some states, including New York State, have actually mandated this already. They also recommend screening men who have sex with men annually or every three to six months if at increased risk. And for everyone else, the recommendation is really to screen if at increased risk. However, as I mentioned before, this really does require taking a detailed sexual history to identify vulnerable individuals. And I really do want to encourage providers to make sure their sexually active patients are aware of syphilis and really to offer syphilis screening anytime they're offering screening for any sexually transmitted infection. And how about congenital syphilis? What are some of the signs that HIV care providers should look out for in newborns to help evaluate this? So screening for the baby really starts by ensuring that mothers are tested during pregnancy, including in the third trimester, and that babies whose mothers test positive get an RPR before leaving the hospital. Congenital syphilis can affect almost any organ in the body, but there are some more common manifestations Hepatomegaly, for example, occurs in almost all infants with congenital syphilis and can be associated with jaundice and cholestasis, as well as elevated liver enzymes. A rash, particularly a macular papular rash on the palms and soles or a peeling rash can be common in newborns. Syphilic rhinitis or snuffles is a very classic congenital syphilis presentation. 
it's much more severe and persistent than the nasal discharge of like a common cold. And actually the nasal discharge is contagious. It contains spirochetes and can transmit infection by direct contact. And there are many, many more potential systems that, symptoms that I can list here. Now, what about late congenital syphilis? What is that? How can it be identified? And, you know, more importantly, how can it be prevented? So late congenital syphilis are patients who present with symptoms or a positive test after 30 days of life. And late syphilis can be completely prevented by early detection and early treatment. And so going back to what I was saying earlier is, you know, all mothers should be tested in the first and third trimester to identify babies who might be at risk. For babies who are at risk, they should be tested before they leave the hospital. And through that, we can prevent the identification of late congenital syphilis. As we begin to wrap up, why is it important for HIV care providers to know about all this? And where can they learn more about congenital syphilis? So it's important that HIV providers know how and who to test for syphilis, as well as how to treat it. To learn more about congenital syphilis, you can go to the 2021 CDC STI treatment guidelines. For congenital syphilis, the Red Book on Infectious Diseases, and where I work at the New York City STD Prevention Training Center, you can find a dedicated e-learning module on congenital syphilis with CME, as well as a syphilis monograph that contains a ton of great information. Dr. Zucker, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about the latest data on congenital syphilis and why it's so important for HIV care providers and the HIV community. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.nekaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.